I just have this thing where any narrative revolving around the death of a girl is just a commentary on Twin Peaks. <laughs> yes. It's like how I think it was who said someone said that all philosophy is either a commentary or rebuttal of Descartes. This is the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Clint Eastwood is is communicating directly with with David Lynch in this film. Yeah. Laura Palmer was the first woman ever to die. Yeah, <laughs> true. Actually. Literally, yeah. I tell, that's how a people's history of the United States starts. It's a <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a narration a, of the first season of Twin Peaks. It's the recounting of the pages. first. Of- Welcome back to another episode of High Level Casting. It's me, Zach, your captain for today's journey down the river. I have the whole crew with me here today. Jeremy, Ethan, Doug, and Holly. How's everyone doing today? Uh, Absolutely fabulous, sir. Um, (laughs) Or tonight. It's dangerously cold. Yeah. Um, Well... This I'm here because it was my selection uh, this week for what we're going to review, and I decided the very lighthearted and fun movie that is Mystic River. It was uh, a feel-good adventure. I thought like it was yeah. lighthearted. Yeah, it was funny. It was it was nice. You know, you got a was, lot of serious stuff in the news, and it's just nice <laughs> to like sit down. Unwholesome wholesome family television. Crack Put your feet open up. A, a sprite. A, a crisp, refreshing sprite and, and, and a pedophile. Oh, yeah. A feel good movie about pederasts, vengeance, and wolves at the gate. So, yep. all right, yeah, a great, a great movie to wake up to on Sunday morning and watch just before jumping on a podcast, right, Ethan? Exactly, absolutely. <laughs> this is a Sunday morning film. This is a Sunday uh, morning flick. Yeah, um, easy like a Sunday morning. I know in my soul I contributed to your death, but I don't know how. I'm gonna find him before the police do. I'm gonna find a man and I'm gonna kill him. Maybe one day you wake up and you forget what it's like to be human. Maybe then it's okay. Sometimes I think all of this is just a dream, you know? Well, if you cannot tell, it is not a lighthearted film. Uh, from, <laughs> from thank you, Zach. Maybe can't, maybe can't read, read the room. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't. I didn't get that subtext. I thought it was fun to watch Kevin Bacon and Lawrence Fishburne rockin'. This is a dude's rock movie. Yeah, uh, yeah, dudes are rockin' Funny all over comedy. Boston, baby. Yeah. I guess, so I guess um, first thing I just kind of wanted to do gauge the room like who has seen this before for today. I have Negative. not. I had not. I, I, I realized I had seen this movie like on like TNT on like a Sunday afternoon and like that sounds like a TNT. Yeah, that's a TNT. TNT movie knows right drama. They yeah, do. I, I remember watching the Oscars when this movie it got two Oscars. I think it like did. it was very well received. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially it was like a restart of Clint Eastwood's directing career. This is like the beginning of his current stage of direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember watching and, and reading a little bit about it and I wouldn't watch it 
because it featured Emmy Rossum dying, spoiler alert. And at the time, I had a gigantic high school mm-hmm. boy crush on Emmy Rossum, and I couldn't stand your heart couldn't handle it for dying. Yeah, yeah. And so I specifically stayed away from this movie. That's very specific, and I respect that. Boycotted exactly. it for love, you know. Look, I gotta frame it. We always relive our past. If anything, this movie teaches us that uh, the past is like a river that we are swimming in. It's um, filled with bodies. Filled with wolves. And yeah, are we si- are we swimming or are we sort of sinking? Or are we drowning? Yeah. Which which river is the Mystic River? Like, is it's it a good? Is, is that a river in Boston? It's a river in Massachusetts. Okay. Is that what it's called? The river in Boston is called the Charles. Mm. And, and, and Charles River was not a good title for a movie, <laughs> unfortunately. A real, a real attention grabber, Charles. The old yeah. Chuck. So oh. that's an alternate title: is the old Chuck. The old Dennis, old Dennis Chuck Lahane River. is not actually uh, knowledgeable in the landmarks of the Boston area. Well, so Mystic River is in. I'm reading off of Wikipedia. This is not off. I did live in Boston, but I don't. I've never been to or seen the mystic river so the mystic river is north of boston so it go it travels through a number of boston area communities including east boston uh charlestown everett medford somerville so mostly uh in sort of like the northern boston cambridge region which is not i think where this movie takes place it the the location is fictional but um I don't I think it's intended to represent like Southie, not Cambridge. Mm-hmm. That was Holly, our resident Boston, Boston cultural expert. Oh, sorry, yeah, that would was you say would you say this is an accurate depiction of like traditional Boston cultural values? Did you right. ever have to kill a friend to settle an old grave? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With your trollish uh, goon. Um, I will plead the fifth on that one. Um, so I, my all input that I have on Boston as like a community is inherently like not valid because I'm not from there. I just sure. went to college there and live there for the duration of the time that right. I went to college. So like anyone who is from Boston would sort of inherently reject any input that I have about its <laughs> I got you. Um, and I think that that's valid. I stand yeah. by that. So I'm not going to weigh in on that. Please don't yell at Fair Holly enough. in the street. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> about her, her misrepresenting Boston culture. I don't want to get knifed by the river, so I'm just going to stay out of it. But yeah. Cancel on Twitter for your anti-Irish racism. Like, yeah. that's where we're at. Just take a step back and, and learn your history. I will say that the accents uh, were bad. Mm. The accents were bad. I think that's, that's pretty much the only thing I can weigh in on. I was reading trivia that Michael Keaton, like apparently was living in Boston for like months <clears throat> prepping God. for this film. Mm-hmm. And he was going to play the detective and he got mm. fired from the set. Cause he got into a, a fight with Clint Eastwood and Kevin Bacon came and filled in with like no background and like very little prep and was just like, yeah. I'm Kevin Bacon. <laughs> We got, I mean, we need- getting into a fight that's so serious that you get booted is like very South Boston. So, you yeah, know, yeah, he was method acting. He was he still was. in character. <laughs> the accents were bad, and like all of the locations are real places that are like they filmed on location in Boston. Mm-hmm. And one of the places, the um, 
the bar where the girls are like dancing on the on the bar mm-hmm. top. That McGill's, bar, I believe it was. That's not what it's actually called, but it's located in a neighborhood that I used to live in. So I, oh, uh, damn. I've never been to it, but I do know where it is. Yeah, they. I mean, I don't know. I kind of wonder why they didn't use actual places. Like, I feel like the neighborhoods of Boston are sort of pretty well known, and like they have, they mm. all have their own stereotypes. So I was confused as to why they wouldn't just be like, in Dorchester, this happened. I don't really know much, but from what little information I gleaned earlier um, from IMDb is that it was filmed in a very, very short period of time. It was less than two days. Um, The whole fucking movie? Yeah, the whole movie was filmed in 39 hours. So to me, that screams like I don't I didn't look into like how much it costs to make and everything, but they were fucking in and out and they had to have caught like an actual parade, if you ask me. Like I don't that shoot the rodeo, you know. Hold like on. yeah, I don't know. What? I don't know. But um, I, I, I feel don't, like this, I don't have this that fact? much information. Do you have I, this like source? Yeah, it's on IMDb under the so, trivia of the. Did you know it only took thirty nine hours for the movie, which is at, like what? That's crazy. But yeah, it, okay. That's uh, I mean, if IMDb can be trusted, right. I mean, because well, you, you can't trust anything on the internet. Yeah, you can't trust anything on the I internet. I watched it on Amazon us. Prime. No, 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 no. This movie was shot in 39 days. Oh, <laughs> Son of a bitch. I was gonna say. Oh my god. <laughs> I was getting a different trivia fact on Amazon Prime. Just a little bit. Uh, just that's, just, that's just got, me messing with you just a little bit. No, I'm, that's I, I me got fully the Goo Crew myself. fact check-in and they said that was a <laughs> slime crime. Well, right um, I guess before we get too far, Zach too far away in, here. Did you know <laughs> that this took place in Boston? Fun fact. Zach, what happens in Mystic River? <laughs> <laughs> so... This movie is, it folds over and over in uh, layers, just like an onion. Um, oh, damn it. But it's a story about the development of like three young childhood friends. And it all blossoms really from the development of a crime that gets taken place uh, where one of the children is coerced into believing a police officer Get, gets him in the back of his car and abducts him. Uh, Super realistic premise that happens literally every day. Yeah. And after being held for four days, he finally escapes. We then get a flash forward, what, about 30 years, 40, year, 40 years in the future? I believe it's, yeah, 25 to Because it, start, it took place in 1975 and then when they were kids. And then I don't really know. They don't really give you a, like, so many years later uh, still shot or anything, but it develops into telling you where these three boys are currently and a couple murders that take place that bring them all back together. And you get the crime drama, Clint Eastwood, uh, melting pot of sorts thrown at you from there. Well, this should be the cities, but, uh, the park state jurisdiction. So the body's in there. Case is ours. How much evidence do you think they've destroyed so far? Let's go find it. I had pointed out that he tends to like dad films, right? And what I what I mean by dad films is that movies dads would like, not just movies portraying dads, but movies like that you're, down under. 
Yeah, yeah. That's why I said I, I watched Ford versus Ferrari, and you guys were like such a dad film. It's a dad, just like, dad movie, though. Uh, but it was so, so good. Let's explain with the idea of dad music. You're in the car with your dad, and he's listening to the classic rock station, and like mm-hmm. Van Halen comes on, or classic dude, dad. Dude music. looks like a lady comes on, and yeah, he's bopping, and he's like. Oh, they don't make music like this anymore. Like, this is the stuff. Like, when he was 18, he was rocking with his friends listening to this music. And from then on, it is the only thing that is cool. Uh, So even as you get older, you still have that relationship. Dad movies are like that in that they, they feel like they have a certain texture and aesthetic of like... Well, before times it's dad media really you could say yeah. mm-hmm. the, like the, there's that phrase they don't make blank like they used to like they used to anymore yeah. i would and, say that any uh pre-transformers michael bay film is is very clearly a dad movie like armageddon mm-hmm. the rock oh, hell yeah oh my so you have these very sim cinematic movies that you know it's shot a certain way you got a couple dutch angles thrown in there you have like a soundtrack that is epic in some form with like a a classical orchestra murder crime is involved there's drama and men are allowed to show their emotions because they are they have experienced or are actively experiencing violent trauma and this is all set in a realistic quote realistic world setting right it's not the high heavy, fantasy yeah you know u.s 1990s or early 2000s like dad media like it's definitely like self-insertion media you know like what if i was on the case you know yeah i'm the i'm the hero like this is the man i want to be you know yes. it's like if i didn't have a kid if i wasn't if i didn't have to you know do the same job i was working since 1982 you know, that you can't get now because the the market has collapsed. Uh, I would be like a retired mercenary still working for the CIA, you know, and I would be saving, I would be saving the world from the bad men. I would be blowing up that asteroid with my body. Exactly. I would be saving and everyone would not know my sacrifice, but I would yeah. do it except like my daughter, right? That my daughter who is and this is a, a trope in dad movies. My daughter is the most important female in the world. The only right. one that really matters. Um, and Clint Eastwood is, he's a, a dad media auteur, I think. Starting with this movie, like, you know, he got a lot of accolades for this movie. And since then, all of his movies have been movies your dad would love. What? Letters from Iwo Jima. The, the World War II movies. Uh, Gran Torino. Gran Torino. I referred to Gran Torino earlier to Jeremy uh, as uh, the Get Off My Lawn film. Yeah, that's because I couldn't, I couldn't well, that's, recall its name. That's uh, an evolution of the dad film. That's a grandpa mm-hmm. film. That's a grandpa mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it all think- ties in. It all ties in. I think dads like them more than grandpas. Because grandpas only watch like... Mm-hmm. I don't Wayne. know Hogan's Heroes or <laughs> yeah John Wayne. Yeah. Dad's watching Eastwood. It's like the hey, Hank Mash Williams. Great. <laughs> yeah, Mash. <laughs> it's like everyone has a favorite Hank Williams, and they they degenerate as time goes on. And Clint mm-hmm. Eastwood is the Hank Williams Jr. Okay, you know John Wayne being the Hank Williams. Yeah. But uh, yeah, American Sniper was probably his most controversial movie of this period like they're all considered good they're very like reactionary movies they're very conservative movies which is like a a rare thing now 
Um, Can I ask Ethan why he didn't start making dad movies until this movie? Like, why was it that the content that he was making previously did not count as dad? Well, movie? he's always been record, like he's always been directing since like the seventies. I think Outlaw like, Josie Wales is a dad movie. Yeah, right? that's pretty dadly. Um, I think I don't my, remember he directed that. Too. My theory was he was too busy starring in dad westerns up until what Unforgiven. Okay, that's fine. Then he took his break, and now he's like, "I'm going to be a director now." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was he was too busy being the rogue cowboy. I also think that uh, to answer Holly's question there, that it's like dads at this time in the in the early 2000s are like that the dads that we're thinking the the generation you know before us the boomers they are reaching that age where they're hitting 40s and 50s where they're starting to stare at the end of their careers or starting to contemplate retirement. And they're starting to consume more and more film because, you know. <laughs> That's what you do on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> exactly. And so there is a market for, for dad films that fit this culture. And Mystic River, uh, to transition back to, into the movie, Mystic <laughs> River is a, a really interesting film to me because you get to watch uh, Sean Penn mm-hmm. uh who portrays the the main dad in the film. There are several dads in the film. Goth is, it's like the first time that he's able to express emotion. It feels like at, at this catastrophic level. And it is only because of the death of his daughter has been, you know, like been thrust upon him. And now he is like allowed. And so it, it, like, there's a certain tone that I, I see through these acting roles where like, now it's okay for Sean Penn to cry. Now it's okay. Like now that he's no longer around his family, he's alone on his porch and he's got Tim Robbins sitting absentmindedly next to him for his one distant connection for support, a guy he's barely spoken to as an adult. Like now it's okay for me to show emotion. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain kind of part of the boomer dad culture that this film legitimizes where like the, the classic stoicism of men in this patriarchal like neighborhood and society at this point where only through events can we reflect. We cannot just like look at ourselves and, you know, learn who we are. We have to like be constantly moving to the next big thing. And sometimes the next big thing is a death you know, and if you're not ready for that because you haven't done any thinking or reflection on your own, sorry, dude, like this is what you got. And that's also reflected really well in Boyle, uh, Tim Robbins' character, who, like I want to point out, has never taken the moment to like do anything for mental health. His community no. has no gonna... way of supporting. He is, he, Boyle is the character, Danny Boyle is the one that is picked up by the pedophiles at the beginning and he is abused, he escapes and then uh, at one point when he's returned to his house and the boys are looking into the house, you can hear someone walk by the house and say, he's damaged goods, like labeling him for life as like, this is this guy's fucked up now. So like, mm-hmm. we, we got to kind of keep our distance from him. And so there is no network for Boyle. So when we meet Boyle, he becomes our prime suspect for the murder because he fits our suspicions of those damaged goods because the community has been in no way capable of offering him any level of support to where he can actually get past his, his abuse and his trauma. The entire plot twist of this film is, is hinged upon the single fact that Boyle cannot 
confront it in any fashion and actually talk about it. Like he, when he did finally bring it up, he was just like, and he said their names. He's like, that's the first time I've ever told anyone their names. And it's just like, he's never taught. And it's like, and so he's, he's got all these problems and everything that are, like you said, like even making his wife and everyone start to question because he's so insecure about what happened and just like, it's speaking it out loud and everything that it creates all those additional twists and turns that the film kind of just feeds on. I feel like we should clarify for people who haven't seen the movie, who are, Mm -hmm. who might be listening to this podcast. We don't just presume that he's a suspect because he was sexually abused. We presume because he comes home the same night. Katie is killed, covered in blood, admitting to killing someone who was. Yeah. So So there is like, we're not just saying like, Oh, the movie implies that everyone who's Mm -hmm. ever been sexually abused is capable of murder. It's there's like a specific context in which we're led to believe that that's the case. It's actually uh, a pedophile that he he catches in the act and and beats him to death essentially. But he can't even tell his wife the truth because he's never even told her why that would trigger him to to go kill a man essentially. So, um, but I think also like the point that I was getting at is that he's an easy suspect not just because his wife suspects him and he has cuts on his hand, but because this community already knows he's fucked up. They're more inclined to think that he is capable of doing fucked up things. Well, one of the, uh, the detectives, the one that's played by Lawrence Fishburne, I mean, he, he latches on to uh, Dave immediately as being a suspect mm-hmm. simply because of that past trauma. I don't know if I agree with that, Jeremy, because it seems to me like Lawrence Fishburne is someone who does immediately like, Oh, he's he like checks all the boxes, but he's not someone who was in the community. All the people who were in the community, really, it's their last. It's sort of the last thing on their mind. They would never assume that that was the case. And Sean Penn doesn't even really consider that it's possible. Even after you know he's been like, what's his name? Danny Dave. 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 So Danny <laughs> Boyle is a director. Yes. Yes. Um, He's been, you know, he's been acting weird and he like is wandering around in the middle of the night and like confessing to have seen Katie at the bar and all this stuff. But like nobody, nobody even considers it until Celeste, his wife, goes to Sean Penn's character and expressly tells him, I think my husband killed your daughter. Like up until that point, nobody is like, well, it must have been Dave because he he was traumatized. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that there is no admission of trauma. Like no one's allowed to talk about it. And Kevin Bacon's character also is like, couldn't have been him. I refuse to believe that it's him. Right. And he makes a point of pursuing all these other avenues before he will even consider that it was, that it was Dave who did it. As so I think f- it, it feels sort of like inverted in that sense that like people mm-hmm. who are outside the community would presume that someone who's damaged goods would commit murder. But people within the community have these such strong familial bonds that they're like, Nope, I know that guy. I know him. I know he's a good man. And that feels like related to this um, revelation towards the end where uh, there's this sort of long monologue about another murder that happened. And it's like, I looked in his eyes and he, he said, I know you're a good man. And like, it's all related to this, this mm-hmm. very patriarchal concept of like what it means mm-hmm. to be good, what it means to like how, how murder and violence and trauma can exist within and without this like very delineated, but never spoken concept of what it means to be a good man. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I think what I'm latching on to is the moment that Boyle's wife makes the confession to Jimmy and Jimmy decides that he's the one that killed his daughter is, is that's also the point that the entire community decides. And when in reality, the case is more complex than that, he is guilty of murder, just not the murder that we think. What's striking to me is that the moment that the community sees him as a suspect, they condemn him. Especially like, you know, those with mob ties, really, or like the organized crime ties that they have. And there isn't so much room for discussion at that point. There's no room for investigation. Like uh, Jimmy has his couple, his pair of thugs, the Savage Brothers, go out into the community and do their own line of questioning because they because they can't work within the the bounds of the law. They have their own, you know, they, their own set of rules. They have their own hierarchies that they adhere to. And the moment that Doyle is no longer enshrined as that guy, he couldn't have done it. I grew up with him, which both the detective and uh, Jimmy Markham both have to like, like the rest of the community, I feel like, especially like, you know, like when the Savage Brothers are questioning people and stuff, you see the same thing kind of happening with Lawrence Fishburne's character, the other detective, and kind of the Savage Brothers, if I recall correctly, where they're already kind of beginning to suspect Boyle, but -hmm. his childhood friends are still willing to protect him because of the history that they have. And it's not until certain scenes where Boyle gets aggressive, like in the interrogation room. It's just the moment that the coin flips, it's done. And there's really no going back. And I think that's like kind of another thing for this movie too, is like once the die is cast, like there's nothing that we can do. Like there's no, there's no structure for anyone to be like, all right, let's all stop and have a conversation about this. And like, figure out if what we really think is true is actually true, but it's all fueled by conjecture. I mean, I think that my understanding of the scenario is that because Dave's wife is Jimmy's wife's cousin, Mm -hmm. then that makes her, you know, his blood tie. Like Dave was his friend, his childhood Mm -hmm. friend, but they're estranged now. So in the hierarchy of relationship, Celeste, Dave's wife is you know, more relevant to, to Jimmy than Dave is. So Jimmy is like honor bound to Dave until Celeste, who's higher up in the hierarchy, tells him, you know, I think Dave killed your daughter. And then it becomes mm-hmm. like, then the, that's, I feel like it's less like a community decision and more just like the hierarchy changes or someone higher up in the hierarchy makes a decision. And it it creates this sort of, pyramid structure where the community is led by Jimmy because he has the power. So he, you know, he commands the, the goons and he gets, he hears the whispers from the wives or whatever. And then at the end you realize that like the real top of the pyramid is Jimmy's wife, I guess. (laughs) Um, Oh, we'll get there. That's my, this is, this is the part where I'll just say in general, this was this was a good movie. It was a very compelling movie, and I was waiting to see where the Clint Eastwood turn would go, and I wasn't finding it up until the last ten minutes of the movie, where it takes a psychotic and mm-hmm. it, like borderline fascist turn, yes. <laughs> like yep. through through Laura Linney's character of Jimmy's wife, and I know she has a name. I'm sorry, and Annabeth. Annabeth. Yes. Yeah, Anne. That's close. 
So we do need to frame the relationship between these three characters. Like this is a character driven movie and it's about how these three men are dealing with this traumatic event in their lives and how they are sort of making up for the past and what has happened, what has changed right each time. So, right. You have the three kids, you have uh, Jimmy who's like, as a child, he's the bully, but he's like the bully friend, but the one that demands respect. He's the one that like goads the other ones into doing the leader of the group. Yeah. You have Sean who is like the meek quiet boy. Um, And then you have Dave. I would just say he's the kid that's there. And I think that's important because ultimately he's the one that is picked up by these predators. Right. I think Dave is the one who needs assurance. I feel like in the very small amount of time that we spend with the boys in the very beginning, Dave is the one who's like, He's the one who hits the ball into the gutter, so he's already mm-hmm. in trouble. He's the one who like mm-hmm. Less really wants one. to be liked. Right, exactly. He's the one who uh is vulnerable because he doesn't have like a well developed sense of self. Which right. makes sense as like can a, be told can be ordered around easier than the others. Yeah. He's the last yeah. one to try and write his name in the cement. Yeah. And in fact he doesn't finish writing. Doesn't it finish. Um and I thought that was like very poignant and like a very like Mm-hmm. Subtle, softly disturbing thing where the line is like, this is going to be here forever. And then as we fast forward 25 years, we see Dave again. And like we say, he's like, he's marked as what we would see as like the oddball. Like he's a, he's a strange kind of guy, not like reviled. He's still part of the community, but very strange, very distant. And we look at this cement where like his unfinished name is still there. Yeah. A permanent reminder of like, the thing that, as he would describe it later, the thing that killed the him. Dave. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that killed Dave and let put him in the vampire castle, basically. Yeah. Um, so as we see these people progress, Jimmy, who was the bully, is now like he runs a corner store. Uh, Sean Penn's character, he's very like, he's got the greased back hair. He's looking like a mobster. He's the he's, dude. Yeah. He's the, he, yeah, he's the cool guy. He's not really like it's it's ambiguous whether or not he's like part of the mob. But as we see later on, he has a criminal past. He spent time in prison. Definitely has ties to yeah. criminal organization. So but. this is a, a an Irish culture thing. Once you hit a certain level, you just are assigned to goons um, with a funny name. In this case, the Savage Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a it's like a tribal chieftain thing. But anyway, right. He's sort of. It looks like he had a criminal past, but now he's trying to be clean. That's what we're presented with at the opening, right? He runs a corner store. He's got a daughter that he loves. It's important to note that, like, he's the guy, he's the glue of whatever, like, ties and organization that he was a part of. He was the glue. Yeah, he's of sort of a, he's because the he's man. reason why everything was always so clean for so long and nothing ever. And then the only reason why he went to jail is because just ray flipped on him that we learned right learn that later on but that's, i will say yeah. as we've hinted this takes place in like a very working class irish community mm-hmm. the idea behind that is like everybody knows everyone else everyone's related and it is a place where like thugs basically have a certain social credit right 
Um, well, yeah, that ties back into kind of that organized crime, like that need, right? The neighborhood needs right. to defend itself. Yeah. The community relies on the hierarchy to give it structure. The right? cops can't be trusted. So we deal with things ourselves, right? Exactly. That's it's a tale as old as time when it comes to these sort of crime dramas. And so we, yeah, we got Tim Robbins as Dave. And then the middle one, Kevin Bacon, the quiet nerdy kid, he's a fed right federal cop baby wisecracking with lawrence fishburne right getting coffees bitching about gentrification um, in the yeah, end this is a very team. pro-cop movie i feel oh, like absolutely it is yeah because clint eastwood is pro-cop yeah. <laughs> but uh, you're like, you're like wow the cops are actually doing their job yeah for yeah once. like you know they're they're like they're beating us to every every avenue every turn and it's just like oh okay and I, think, I did. I did love the line at the end, though. He's just like, "Was there anything important on on the nine one one call?" They're like, "I thought you listened to it." No, I thought you listened to it. And it's just like, and it turns out to be the the one like the the, the piece to solve it all. It's just like, oh, right? Yeah, it's all uh, due copyrocracy. To, <laughs> the cop part. <laughs> I feel personally like the acting is is very well executed. I really like Sean Penn. Apparently, maybe I shouldn't for like other reasonings, but for acting purposes, <laughs> a lot of actors I, are asking. I, 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 exactly. I really You're like Sean Penn. Trash um, people. And I think this was like the last really good film of his that I watched. But uh, I was introduced to this movie when I was younger by one of my one of my better childhood friends, and uh, he always was one of you know you always have like some friends that like that they consider themselves and and the group that also considers them to be the uh like the movie buff or you know whatever and and this was like a film that he he just always had a lot of good things to say about and so when i finally watched it i had some high expectations for it but it it just really just sits with you and it's got a lot of really good faces uh, a lot of good acting I, I we've already been discussing a little bit but it seems like overall it wasn't hated which is just my benchmark for whenever suggesting a movie <laughs> i hated it i hated uh, it i i actually no, I all know. movies are terrible i hate every like <laughs> just, I, just go outside this this movie uh, whenever we i i finished my initial like watch uh what i told you in the chat zach was that this this movie is like a deluxe candy bar that you that you eat when you're when you're craving that cinematic drama right you're not getting like you know a handmade confectionery dessert you're going not to the to the checkout lane. You're going to the candy aisle, and you're getting one of those what? nice, real big deluxe candy bar Inside, desserts for your, yeah. for your for for your enjoyment. Because it's this movie is just well executed on many levels. It is, like, yeah. No, Clint Eastwood is a good director. I want to exactly. make it very clear that like uh, American Sniper, notwithstanding, it is that it, that is a trash movie through and through. He makes good movies. There's movies with messages that we probably wouldn't agree with but probably your dad would but they're all good movies and they all have interesting things to say about society they're conservative takes on society but they have interesting things to say and i wouldn't say that this film isn't unenjoyable or is bad by any means mm. uh i think it's a well-made film about how not to process trauma there are just ways that the neighborhood 
you know, the community, the hierarchy, that these folks could have avoided these pitfalls, right? And that's that's the point of a tragedy because ultimately what this film is, is it's a mystery drama tragedy because the people that die don't deserve death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if, you know, the experiences that they go through made them into people that are vastly different than the children with the futures that we see at the beginning. And I think that's really like, what this film is trying to hit is like these, these men keep looking back at their childhoods in the moment that not just Boyle's childhood ends, but all of their childhoods end because it's that, Mm -hmm. that one day where no one is safe on the streets anymore. And you have to realize that Mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's pedophiles lurking around every corner for you. And I can talk about that issue uh, on its own, but like we kind of all, I think like as we kind of process adulthood and we all become like, you know, our own adults or who are figure out our own identities. We have these watershed moments where we realize our childhood is done and we are now traversing into the path of adulthood. Right. And so one of the interesting questions that I see at the end of the film, whenever you have uh, Jimmy and Sean talking about the events and Boyle's death, and they're talking about who got in the car. Right. And Sean's point is that we all got in the car. (laughs) Yes. Uh, and like now, all, yeah, I, and now we've all kind of died inside, right? In um, a very fucked up line, he's like, we're all just kids locked in a basement dreaming about what our lives would have been. Yes. With our, and, these lives full of suffering and loss up to this point, <laughs> like, they've built I, something, but it's not nice. Exactly. And I think my question is, is why aren't they asking, they keep asking, well, if I had gotten in the car, my future would have been different. Or if, I, if, if he had gotten into the car, his future would have been different. Like mm-hmm. Jimmy does this whenever he's talking to the de- detectives in the uh, hospital I love cafeteria. that speech. Yeah. And he's just, he's just like uh, making a really roundabout story to make his point uh and you're just left sitting you're just like man where is this going there's Uh, some really good monologues yeah from about every character like there's some really good monologues yeah boils like monsters like yeah the vampire one good yeah Yeah, so good my favorite being laura lenny's at the end we'll talk about that one (laughs) we'll we'll get there later jeremy we got thoughts we got thoughts (laughs) um the, the the question that comes into my mind every time they brought up that conversation, right? Well, if he had gotten in the car, or if we had gotten in the car, or we all got in the car. No one ever asked, well, what if none of us got in the fucking car? Yeah. Like, right. what it was always had, like someone had to get in. Someone right. had to get in. Someone had to be sacrificed. Someone had to someone had to take the fall. Someone had to experience this this horrible, terrible how, thing that shattered our childhoods. There was I don't no think it actually it states, but how old do you think the children were during like, it, it would have been like, like 10 to 12? Yeah. yeah, preteens. Well, I think probably, an yeah, actual number school. is given. Somewhere. Well, so it's in 1975 yeah, is the only, like, date I can find. But, yeah, so, like, I watched this when I was 14. Mm. Wow, okay. Imagine watching. So that's, Formative. like, yeah. Yeah, I watched it when I was 14. And I, I think this is like rated R. I'm assuming, right? Uh, uh, no, this is rated PG-13. Well, so like, I mean, so just a little history on me. Like, I was the first born. Like, my mom did everything they could to shelter me. So like, even movies. Like, I couldn't. I remember like when the Matrix was out. Like, I wasn't allowed to watch the Matrix. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, I don't know. This was this had to have been around the same like the my intro wave of like I'm going to start watching radar movies. And I was only 14. I think I watched it like at my buddy's house, and and it just stuck with me. I think to your point, Jeremy, that question of what if nobody got in the car 
to me speaks to this very, I don't know, it feels like an inherently like, like colonialist carceral informed presumption that like violence is inevitable Mm -hmm. and that obviously somebody had to get into the car and if it hadn't been me or it hadn't been you, it would have been someone and that there's no, you know, there's no way to avoid violence, that it's random. It comes from nowhere. You have to always be prepared to confront it. And that to me reflects also this sort of hierarchical structure where like, I have to protect my family. I have to protect, you know, the community from violence with violence because, you know, an eye for an eye and also just like violence is inevitable and it begets itself and that there's no way to, to get rid of it. And I think that when we think about community, like what does it mean to have a community, having a mob or like having a hierarchical structure that answers to someone who just sort of doles out violence wherever he sees fit, like that's not a community or at least it's not a community that can create the kind of support and care that's necessary to help people recover from trauma and to help them not perpetuate violence. Like, it's funny that that Clint Eastwood would make this movie because I don't think that he would really agree with, with any of this, but I think that in many ways it seems clear that if Dave had had, you know, like a sort of strong sense of self that would have allowed him to, you know, not be bullied into getting into a car with strangers, Mm -hmm. or if he had had, you know, a stronger community around him to help prevent him from making that decision, or if he had had supportive, you know, people around him who could hear, who he could trust to communicate his emotions, and if he wasn't sort of haunted by the specter of patriarchal emotional suppression, then those are the things that communities need to do in order to prevent the perpetuation of violence. But instead you know, this, it, everything is sort of sustained in this rolling cycle of like, you know, you offended me and then, so I hated you and then you snitched on me and I went to prison and then I had to shoot you, but then I had to like pay your child support mm-hmm. so that your kid you know, yep. doesn't go hungry, but also I hate your kid. And like, there's just, it's just this per- perpetual cycle. And mm-hmm. to me, it feels carceral. Like it all, it's, it's like, yes. And that, ties in to me to this idea that like, oh, the feds are good. Just let them do their job and this won't happen because (laughs) it's just a replication of this same structure. Like if you just let the police put the pedophiles in prison, then you don't have to go murder your buddy by the river. And it's like, aren't, you know, isn't all this violence just the same violence? Like none of this is fixing Mm -hmm. the problem. Yep. And if none of us had gotten in the car, then this wouldn't have happened. But like we all, somebody's got to get in the car because- you know, there's no, there's no it's light at the, end of the tunnel. There's no option wherein like men don't experience violence that they can't recover from. They just mm-hmm. experience violence and then pass that violence on to other families or their own children. And it's like, I don't know, like, what are you supposed to learn from this? And like, it's, so that's why, you know, I feel like my takeaway from this movie is so like, none of this works. It's all broken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that that's, that was Clint Eastwood's intention. I do think that's what makes viewing this movie worthwhile is like mm-hmm. seeing this system. And like, as you said, it's a carceral. It is just a replication of like the, the law enforcement and prison system, but just in, you know, citizen form in community form. It's all about punishment. It's just about like violence happens and then you have to punish the violence. It's not about healing. It's not about recovery. It's just about 
You experience something violent that's out of your control, and the only way that you can possibly recover is to either punish yourself or to punish someone else. Well, it's, exactly. a, it's a very it's a very Catholic thing. I mean, yes, this, this kind Ooh, of, yeah, the yes. deeply Catholic yeah. movie. Um, <laughs> I mean, it reinforced with the whole B plot of the one of Jimmy's daughters is having her first mm-hmm. communion, I think. And, yep. you know, the whole, the whole impetus of, of Katie's disappearance is, you know, she was supposed to show up to the, the first communion the next day. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just this kind of suffering is necessary for whatever reason, like everything happens for a reason, which I don't think is ever uttered by any of the characters, but I think it is this subtext to the movie. The inevitability of it. Yeah. Right. I would say that is, if I want to like the reactionary or conservative sort of ideological thesis statement is that the world is an inherently evil and cruel place. Um, It will beset you. It, it seeks to consume you. Mm -hmm. And by the world, I mean, everyone who's not you and who you define as being you, your family, your community, which is not like a big city. It's like the people, you know, and Clint Eastwood very specifically in American Sniper lays out his like thesis statement for like, I would say most of his movies and that you got three types of people in the world. You have, you have, most people are sheep. We're all sheeple. Uh, there are wolves that feed on the sheep and then Clint Eastwood, uh, the sheep dog, the bad man who is bad because he has to protect everyone else. And this is the like archetypal, Again, the dad aspirant, like the bad, like he's not bad because he's an evil person, because in this sort of moral logic, you cannot be evil, but you have to adapt and adopt certain cruel things so that the innocent people in your life can can be comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of it's a bullshit worldview in a lot of different ways, but it is sort of like this is a very conservative worldview. It's like you need to be that person who will protect the their family or their community from the bad men, whoever the bad men are. In oh, some ahead. ways, this movie also sort of plants that individualist seed, that like individualist reactionary mm-hmm. seed that even the people that you think are your community, even your neighbors, because Jimmy and Dave are neighbors. They live in this, they live like on the same street or whatever. They're still neighbors, even as adults, even those people can be, you know, can be the prop, they can be the secret violence that you'll never know about, that you'll never see coming. And it's, it's also reflected in the fact that Jimmy kills Ray. Mm -hmm. And so in that he's, he's also that thing for someone else. He is someone else's like secret community violence. And like, so really it sort of plants, it, it perpetuates this reactionary myth that you can't trust anyone. The only person who will ever know you and be able to protect you is yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, this also feeds into Boyle's actions, which kind of, you know, cause like the whole mystery of the film, right? Because he can't process his abuse that he like was dealt as a child, he has to atone through it through violence mm-hmm. in order to prevent himself from becoming, as he says, a vampire as well. Because for me, and maybe this read is wrong, but like he's probably had a lot of crazy thoughts because of what he's experienced. Mm-hmm. And he can see himself becoming a vampire 
And then the only way to prevent himself from becoming a vampire is, is still in that kind of that inevitable Catholic mindset of he is now like drenched in sin. He has to go out and prevent more sin from taking place in order to, in order to, you know, atone for his own, you know, his own uncleanliness. And he cannot communicate this to anybody because he's acting in vigilante justice. He's acting Mm -hmm. impulsively. I would wonder if he's out looking for trouble or if he just stumbles upon it. Right. And he just reacts Mm -hmm. to it, but like he just kills and it's fine. Right. There's no real implications throughout the story that are you, are you referring to just this one isolated incident or are you speaking to maybe like he has or tried to um, have this situation multiple times before? So what, what I'm saying is like, there's a lot of subtext in his monologue about vampires and about uh-huh. him becoming a vampire. So clearly the allegory, the euphemism, whatever you want to call it for vampire is pedophile. And so like, I would disagree with that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, because he says at the beginning that, right. He sort of admires these monsters because they're not human anymore, but then they realize they're not human and they like it. And so a big thing that he expounds upon is that he, as a person died during this, mm-hmm. this event. And then afterwards, something else is him. And like, Throughout the movie, you get these weird things where he's talking about me and the boy. Like he's like, yeah, two persons. I don't didn't see it so much as like he's fighting away the urge of becoming a pedophile himself. I didn't see that as much. I saw it as he's defining a monster as like he did this predatory act of killing somebody. Uh, and I think this is like a spur of the moment thing. He's not like a secret serial killer or anything. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's too outlandish. But like he sees himself as becoming a monster to be a sort of protector thing that like he can fulfill this role of like keeping the wolves away. He very specifically defines himself as the boy who escaped from wolves. Um, I I think it's interesting too, that he just so happened to kill somebody who is convicted of, you know, those types of crimes by accident. That, Mm -hmm. that line of dialogue just kind of seemed thrown in it there to kind of justify his murder to to me. Because because the scene that he stumbles upon could very easily be just like, not just, but it is, you Mm -hmm. know, like a gay prostitution exchange. Right. And it, well, so the implicate, uh, so, cause then he mentions, did you know that there was child prostitution off of what I, I can't remember the in location. this neighborhood? Yeah. I but it's like, in the neighborhood. Neighbor. So like it, it didn't seem so like blatantly young, like the, the, the person, but they were supposed to That's be like, you they, know, they, under 18. There's the limitations of the film. Right? They couldn't yeah. show that. Yeah. They yeah, couldn't, right. they would not do that. Yeah. Like they, they exactly. can't do that in 2003 or now you can't, you just can't. So there's one, um, in, one thing, cause you're talking about monsters and everything. And when he, when he initially comes home uh, at three in the morning and he's got the gash and he's, you know, covered and he's telling his, his, his made up story to his wife because he can't mugger. trust her with the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there's a moment where she's like taking his clothes, uh, taking his jacket and everything. And, uh, and he's like, explaining he's like you know it's 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 a really weird feeling having harmed a person it makes you feel alien and i feel like him speaking that out right there is not so much the act that he committed but it's tying into how he probably like he's probably felt alien his whole life 
uh, oh, yeah. from that situation. So the, and then you start seeing, he even says it, he's like, I can't trust my mind anymore. And that's what makes me think it was a one time and like it wasn't planned. It oh, was um, because this really starts him on a psychological breakdown and seeing everything else fall apart around him. I think it's really interesting to view this from the sense of the two husbands and wives being Celeste and Dave and Jimmy and Anne, because you basically have night and day. You have a relationship that like knows each other in and out. They like, she knows who her King is and she loves him. Wait, 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 wait. Like, which one is which? Which one is which? Jimmy and Anne. Like they, I they, would, I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that. Well, hold on. Let I, me, let me finish. And then you yeah, go, go So, so go what off. I'm trying to say is that I think that she knows who her husband is. She knows mm-hmm. his background. He is probably more straight and, and honest and truthful about his, his dealings. His, like he, she knew that Katie was his favorite daughter. She's even says you have two other daughters. So like they know each other. Whereas my feelings is that they, Dave and Celeste, they may love each other. They, they may have, you know, that connection and like, you know, but he isn't truthful with himself. He's not truthful with his wife. So by, by that massive seed that plants in that relationship, you then get her later on willing, so willing to throw him to the wolves again, because she doesn't know him. So when he's going through his, you know, talking about the boy having mental breakdowns and trying to explain his trauma that he experienced early on. And she like starts to put the pieces together. She's like, Oh, like, cause he's never told her about it, but she must've heard about the car or something at some point she had to must've had to know. Cause she, she, she started like, Oh, you're telling me, but then instead of continuing to open up, he, kind of goes back to that monster thing and starts scaring her and doesn't communicate anymore. And then he also continues spreading his lies everywhere. So kind of just touch back into what we were discussing earlier about how the community starts to see him in that negative light is like when that's happening, he's literally on the fastest downward spiral that he could be experiencing in almost every aspect of himself and like his relationships and everything. Well, and I might be just inferring this, but at some point, somebody makes a comment about, I think it might be Lawrence Fishburne's character makes a comment about Dave being like intermittently employed for a long time. So I don't think this is like yep. the fast track of the, the downward spiral. Like, I think the spiral has been going on for mm-hmm. a long time. I could be just inferring it from, because I, I don't think there's ever... Uh, I guess I mean with like maybe. I guess what I mean with that is that in re- relations to his his relationship with his wife like mm. that's no that's that's right yeah but I actually didn't catch that part intermittently employed we don't see him working anywhere no in, not once in the movie um, we know Jimmy's got his store and Sean's uh, detective. So yeah, we know they're, the they're school, yeah. Right? yeah. I like that. He walks his kid to school every day and like he watches him go to the building. And it's just mm-hmm. like, you see that scene. And if you're looking at it as just him, you're like, okay, like, yeah, he, he really loves his son. And from what he's been through, he's just trying to do his job. But then you see, you have the cop looking and he's just like, man, what the fuck happened to that guy? So what actually happened? The resolution. I think this is the wildest thing about, about the whole mystery is that there's this this whole exploration of, of evil throughout the movie and the act the, the very act itself thank, you. thank that, you yes that causes everything to happen doesn't I mean it's it's misguided it's mm-hmm. stupid 
but there is no there's no true malice behind it. Yeah, no planned right. malice. There's, no, yeah. There's no evil. It's right. it, it yeah. is a, ultimately a pathetic act by two gawky teenagers playing with a gun. Right. Right. It ties back into this theme that like violence is random and inevitable. You can't avoid mm-hmm. it. It will happen to you even if you are innocent and have nothing to do with it. It'll just happen to you. There is this weird tie in the fact that. The, the gun is not, it's not a random gun. It is mm-hmm. a gun that was owned by just Ray Harris. Not, Your father's not silent Ray favorite. Harris. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Not sweet baby Ray old. Harris. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because it, it, my question then is, is the movie self-aware in that you have these men all bound by this code of ethics and honor that like if there are infractions there are consequences if this ha- mm-hmm. if you rat me out you will die there are these boundaries that are well established and it's not just established by these people it's established by the generations prior to them they're inheriting right. the culture the of, of their you know of their forefathers and so for the random chaos moment of these kids the gun itself has a story but at the same time like the author Lahane and Eastwood both uh, throw in this element of chaos that kind of sets everyone off, right? (laughs) Where all of this powder keg has been building, right? You have all of this uh, unprocessed trauma by Doyle, who's having his Batman moment. Like, then mm. it just ha- so happens to be on the <laughs> same Batman night. moment. Yeah, it seriously. Is. It's an edgy DC superhero origin story. Yeah, this is it your is. Rorschach like, moment, people. If you I, Rorschach, this is what happens to you. I kind of hate that, but <laughs> yeah, it's stopped. So this is important. The idea that, like, it's not an act with motive is important for mm-hmm. Jimmy's character, especially because for him, right, it's vengeance and vengeance is the settling of guilt. Exactly. Right. He needs someone to suffer for the actions they've made. If no one was responsible. Then what do I do with my grief? And as we've said before, but I think we should say again, just to like confirm it, that he ends up stabbing and shooting to death. Dave, Doyle. His, right. His, yeah. yeah. His old friend. Dave Boyle. Um, Boyle. In a very, and, and, the thing that comes back to me is the Bugs Bunny meme of I got to go back to the old me where he's praying to the gun. Like, that's what he's doing. Very specifically, (laughs) I I just want to say real quick, real quick. I love his outfit in the on the dock scene where he's got like the edgiest leather jacket you've ever seen. He has oiled his hair back. He's put the gloves gloves on. He is. He's a good fella. Like, you know, like he's playing the the turtleneck. And I, yeah, yeah. He's back. playing the the crim part. He is like a thug now. He's yeah. got to go back to the old ways. And well, he not. even had his. I thought I put this behind me. Like he's like, <laughs> yeah, I, was, uh-huh. he does. I thought, he I thought that speech, these days were behind me. Specifically said is like I put that in prison, but I'm back. And I got to bring it out one more time. <laughs> I, I, I love it because I think he said he specifically. He's like, I thought my days of killing and dumping bodies in the river were behind me. And it's just like, I oh, just work fuck. at the corner store. I'm an honest yeah. man, but sometimes a guy's got that. And the, things. and that when you got to have my own like, Batman moment, this is, are, this is where we come to wash away Batman our sins moments. for yeah. the denouement, the denouement of the movie. This is where like, you think everything has been told up to this point, right? Like the story is playing out. You get this ultimate tragedy of like, it is a very like Greek tragic thing where it's like mm-hmm. the man dies even though he didn't commit the crime. He's trying to say he didn't do it, but Jimmy's not taking no for an answer. You think it's like over. And then you get my favorite scene of the movie, which is where Jimmy's wife and confirms that 
she knows that he killed Dave and is 125% okay with it. Indeed, I would say it's the thing that solidifies the relationship, right? Like she is very, it's very obvious. She is like attracted to the masculinity shown by this action. Like it's very strange. It's like I told the girls. Their daddy's a king. And a king knows what to do and does it. Even when it's hard. And their daddy will do whatever he has to for those he loves. And that's all that matters. She gets into this very Lady Macbeth monologue of like, you just did what you had to do. And then says that, you know, with this ambition, you could be king of Boston. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? And then they yeah. have sex. <laughs> and then they take the kids to the parade. Like, it is a very... After like, they unveil the Celtic cross that is on his yeah, head. There's so the much imagery in this scene. He's got the rocking cross tattoo because it's so... And so, and so I think it's important to note, kind of like what I was saying earlier, that this whole, like, her reaction and giving my king speech and everything is because, uh-huh. like, he immediately tells her. He's like, hey, listen, I killed Dave last night. And she's like... And she's like, cool. Yeah, and, I knew. Uh, I knew when I was... He's like, you knew? It. And he's like, she's like, listen. While staring pensively out the window at the parade shirtless... Yeah. yeah, like in the text of the scene, right? This is all like a power move in order to reassert his foundation because right now what he's processing is that he killed a, quote, innocent man. And uh, a friend, like a childhood and, and a, friend. And a childhood friend impulsively and made the wrong decision. And what she's responding to is to prevent him from unraveling, uh-huh. is trying to reassert like his kingship like the the, the reason yeah. she married him for whatever like power She's that he has in the community reaffirming the ideological worldview it's like i exactly indeed i wanted to say because zach you were talking about the two relationships and i said i disagreed i, I yeah, lied I go ahead disagree. i was gonna actually ask you to come back to it yeah. I, don't I don't actually disagree i think you made a good point about like so specifically with jimmy and Anne, they do know each other very well right and i would say up until this point the subtext of the movie is that they have like a kind of distant relationship. Jimmy has conflicts with his father-in-law, who's like, you got to be a man for the family. It should be mentioned that Katie, right, the the daughter who's murdered, is not Anne's daughter. It is the daughter of an ex-wife. And it's very clearly hinted at that Jimmy, like, loves her more than the other kids. Like, he still puts himself out there as a father, but, like, his true love lies with this daughter of another woman. And, like, there's a very awkward scene where he's talking about how amazing his ex-wife was while Anne is right there. I believe she's and, deceased. Well, I was going to yeah, say, she is, died. is it splitting so hairs he to say late wife instead of ex-wife? Well, that's why I oh, think yeah, he I'm can sorry. talk yeah. about her in such that endearing was my terms in front of his, his current wife is because this isn't competition. Indeed, versus... it was because she died that he killed... Ray. Uh, just Ray. Yeah, just Ray. Uh, yeah. The, because because he was ratted on, he had to do two years in the, in the stint which robbed him of being that's of that's not being the, there that's for her <laughs> that's it is for me so like yeah he, he wasn't able to be there for the dying part like he was mm-hmm. like i could deal with the death but i couldn't be there for the dying and he's right, like that like, was yeah and but so yeah i think that's really important to and so respect. his daughter is like that last bit of well, you know, I think it's like their relationship is probably built on a very good understanding. Like, well, you know, like how, it's political. how, 
How often? I would, yes, yes. Thank you, Jeremy. I want to say this is this is a Macbeth relationship in that she fulfills the social role of a wife, but it feels like there's distance there as like a, a couple. I wouldn't be surprised if we like dug into like the novel or into the author's like notes that, you know, like that, she's pushing him on throughout. Well, like, but that also Anne to, has some very strong family ties to the, to the, the greater Boston community somehow. Like, right. Yeah. Like, like these families are important. Even if we sort of do away with all of the sort of greater lore of what may or may not be the right. case with Anne. Right. I feel like going back to this idea of a hierarchical family structure mm -hmm. to Anne, both Katie and Dave are disposable. Mm -hmm. Katie is, she mm -hmm. can't say that Katie is disposable, but ultimately Katie is a vestige of a part of the family that's outside of her power, outside of her control. And the fact that her husband loved Katie most more than the two children that Anne gave him. I think that that's where that tension comes from. And then once that tension is eliminated, Anne doesn't care who else has to die because now her family unit is complete. There are no other invasive components to it. She has full control over it. And especially now in this period of time when her husband is like emotionally vulnerable, she has full control over the whole family. And so in the end, it fundamentally becomes not a relationship about love, not a relationship about care or good communication or strong bonds, but a relationship about power. She, mm -hmm. Anne, has the power over the family now because there's nobody in there that doesn't directly report to her. I think that when you're sort of comparing the relationship of mm -hmm. Anne and Jimmy to Dave and Celeste. Mm -hmm. Dave and Celeste have a relationship where nobody has any power really because Dave is so disempowered by his own trauma that he can't cope with. Celeste has no information because he can't communicate to her about it. And they both sort of repel each other like magnets because mm -hmm. they can't, there's no foundation there. The power dynamic is so scrambled. And Jimmy and Anne have a really clean communication power unit and then once Katie is eliminated then it's it's just sort of solidified and it becomes you know a, a hierarchical structure that that can be penetrated and it just becomes you know another replication of this like well I have to make my circle smaller and smaller and smaller so that I can have control over it because the world outside is so violent and unknowable so the last few minutes of the film there's there's a lot of implications going on, a lot of implied relationships. And so we have Jimmy's mistake, right? That's, that's leading to Jimmy's grief and uncertainty. And once Anne kind of helps him reassert his confidence, she's not going to fire Jimmy into the sun. So who's no. going to take the fall for this one? And it's going to be Celeste. And so very nonchalantly kind of put thrown into the dialogue. What kind of wife says those things about her husband? I love that line. Yeah, yeah, it was. So I love that. Line. And we talk about like Holly. That's you make a great point because she's so closing cold. up the family unit and she's closing her inner circle. Obviously, like I don't think like she's going to kill her sister, but this mistake is going to cost her a role in this family, and the hierarchy in the community is going to shun her at just, this point. Yeah, just like and you visually see that yeah. happening on the street. That the only person left alone is Celeste. So, yeah, because she's even like calling to her son on the on the parade float and he like it's so stone, sad that is stone cold like yeah rat well his dad just died right like well see how does, he, up this does he know is. that his dad is dead 
right well, because he's not, missing, like, though. his dad exactly. is gone yeah and like so it's a very like that, that was very yeah emotionally powerful for me so we talk about these two families and their resolution let's talk about kevin bacon's relationship in this movie and this is the twin peaks moment for me this is the most surreal this is a weird surreal addition someone Maybe. else i was wondering what was going yeah. on with this so every now and then kevin bacon gets a call on his flip phone it's a woman at the phone who says no words and he will talk to this woman who doesn't talk to him and we cut to this woman we get like the the bottom half of her face with the red lipstick on and she's mouthing but she never says a word we have multiple conversations where kevin bacon is just sort of giving plot and like feelings to this disembodied voice it is like like it's a direct parallel to the the diane scenes of the <laughs> peak, i feel yeah like but, and, and, and this has been happening for like six months yeah. but this, yeah like the cut to the silent but mouthing face is such a it is like a lucid dreamy aspect of this movie that is not matched by any other part of it the rest of it is very i would say like you know by the book like a realist type thing they do have some interesting talk about dreams and monsters and vampires sometimes but then there's just this weird shit and then kind of like a, a deus ex machina after the thing is resolved Kevin Bacon's character basically confirms with a, an incredibly drunk uh, Sean Penn that like, oh, you killed, you killed Dave. Even though he doesn't, as a cop, he doesn't like do anything about it. It's just like, right. but immediately after that conversation happens, he gets the phone call. And then the woman is like, I'm ready to come back and have a family with you. So and he's like, but, hell yeah, dude. So up to this point, We've talked about how a major point of this film is toxic masculinity and everything. Uh-huh. Uh, not being able to tap into your feelings to yeah, yeah. Uh, apply guilt or blame or anything. And this whole time for six months when he's answering the phone and waiting for her to say something, uh, maybe he'll talk. He's like, oh, you know, like he, he talks about his day, bullshit. Up until this very last time is the first time where he's like, okay, let me take some responsibility yeah, of, okay. of our problems. And he yeah, opens it up and he's just like, hey, you know what? I just want to say, I'm sorry. And then, and then she and becomes then all a of real a sudden, person. Like, the camera lens widens and it's like, oh, she is a real human being. And it's just like, and yeah. she's like thank you. Like, that's, you know, I, that's all I wanted to hear. I'll pack my all bag. she wanted to hear <laughs> was sorry. You got to gotta own up to shit. It felt like really out of left field. They're like, hey, we have to kind of create something for well, bacon. There needs to be resolution. What, I love for that. I love how alien it is. Like the way she's presented is like in a real mystery movie, it would be like, oh my God, it's this other person, right? It's like a reveal that it's this other character. And it, like they do the pullout reveal and it's just the lady you saw in one picture, but you didn't right. see the rest of the movie. They really also, hit us with like three different dad stages because all three characters are dads in this. Much like Jungle to Jungle, she left with a, like she was pregnant or with a baby. That she left even, with child. Didn't yes. even know the name. She was like, I'll come back. By the way, your, your daughter's name is uh, Nora. Yeah, Nora. And he's like, damn, that's cool. I have a great life. <laughs> it's so funny to me that this is how the film like enshrines the importance of clear it's communication so with all of the subtlety of hitting you with a tra metal trash yeah. can over the top of your head at the end like, you know damn. where it's like if only he could say he like say yeah because it's interesting too because he turns down like it, it it kind of sets up the scene 
female coworkers and such. They like, they want to, they're like, they know he's free. They just want to, yeah. you know, give him a good time. And he's just like, no, like he bats it all away he because he's, he's waiting and care. He cares that much that he won't sleep with someone after his wife left with child. Like he cares that much, but he can't say, I'm sorry for six months like that's just like a weird bridge it's the catholic thing <laughs> yeah it's the catholic thing it it's absolutely like the i catholic understand thing. the catholic thing it's but like i also like i'm not it's like a confessional I, scene that's catholic it. can yes. run deep like i'm lucky i kind of i had to go to catholic deep. school and everything and like and i but i got an opportunity and i i bailed on that shit early. this is ultimately a film about the fear of god yeah and like, and but specifically the Catholic over, guy over the suffering of of the Christ. Yeah, <laughs> right. I guess the thing that's yeah. the most confusing to me is like, of the three characters, two of them get redemption. One of whom is sort of like meaningless filler, and one of them who does not deserve redemption. And then the one person who does deserve redemption, like, gets fucking. Mm-hmm. Boiled in the river. Yeah. So, like, what am I supposed to take away from this movie? That like, it is- oh, as long as you have like enough goon power you can run away from prison and perpetuate violence for the rest of your life but if you're a trauma victim with like childhood ptsd who dissociates every 15 minutes but doesn't have any access to resources then you're just destined to die in the river because nobody cares about you like what's what's happening here at clint eastwood it is it is a weirdly ambiguous movie and i would say like up until that point, it is a Greek tragedy where Jimmy's yes. flaw it is a leads to it, it leads to his downfall. So, like that by itself tells a very clear story of like, oh, my my commitment to this vengeance ultimately destroys me, and I end up a drunk bum on the street, like ruined. And then it's undercut with, oh, actually, you made the right choice. You could consider this like the first in an epic because you have Kevin Bacon, like finger gun you know from across yeah. the parade to to sean penn where sean penn just go, gives the like the shrug he with does, the arms he does the shrug he does the tim allen shrug he does yep. the tim allen shrug meaning like these two they're gonna get into some hijinks later it's the, it's only the, the start of the mystic river cinematic it's universe the, it's the cat and mouse in a yeah because i think it's like him letting him know like you're not gonna just get away with because he never outright tells him yes i killed him like he says it and he's just like we got very, the guy yeah. and he's just like i wish just wish you would have done it sooner it is all that like you get and then he's just like oh god what have you done and it's just like it's left unsaid so like him like giving him the finger guns and him being like, what do you mean? Like, I don't, I, you know, it's, I think it's going to be him like trying to, you know, it's like you killed her childhood friend. I'm not going to let you know, but well, yeah, it's, it's the mystic river has many tributaries and deltas many bodies. and they have river boated across two. And that last glance is showing much like the end of fast and the furious seven. This is the last time they'll be together down the same river. Now they're two privateers sailing away. I mean, in the end, I guess it's just like more icing on the already thoroughly iced cake of like violence is random. Justice Mm -hmm. is not possible. Buy gold. Keep your gun by your bed. (laughs) Exactly. Shotguns, baby. Castle doctrine. This is actually an exploitation death wish type movie. Tim Robbins murders a a child molester. Yes. Any any dad watching this movie would be like, oh, it's justified. It's cool. Exactly. I yeah, wanted to bring ev- that anybody. up. Anybody. 
Yeah, Andy would be like, it was the justified like, murder that you're supposed to be completely like, morally okay with. And they would get mad that like they're trying to arrest him. He's like, no, he did the right thing, right? Like nobody would ever defend the murder of a of a child molester. That's why I feel like that line of dialogue where like, oh yeah, this guy's body was just found. And he has, he has three prior, convictions yeah. and priors on him dealing with mm. this already. It wasn't just because it could have very easily been left ambiguous. Like, mm-hmm. did Boyle actually kill somebody that deserved to die? And I think that would have been better. It probably yeah, would have been a lot better. They're basically saying because they like, would have perpetuated more questions, like less yeah. more more uncertainty. Because the there's no way, like, that, no, we have know. to validate. We have to validate uh, Dave. And make sure yeah. that it is known that, like, so he, it's like he killed somebody, but like, and I don't know at how least deep somebody wanna... you could possibly kill. Exactly, you know? like, like for a long time, the gay community gets conflated with pedophilia right, by the right. right all the fucking time because they want to like villainize them and name moralize them and all sorts of shit. I think it would have been a lot better if it was vague and he could have just stumbled across a consenting couple. You know, but ultimately, you have to have like you any... had to have that line. In the reactionary text, there are certain like the bad guys are just like fantasy goblins. They're Much like Death down. Wish yeah. Three, when <laughs> the guy steals the purse from the old lady, he is <laughs> he now marked up. for death. Right. And then yeah. once he is killed, everyone applauds. And it's like, a, the entire exactly. neighborhood claps. This is this. Is, I wouldn't call this an art movie, but it is like an artistic, dramatic. It's Death Wish. It is it, like very much like. It's fancy Death Wish. It, it's Academy it's Award winner. It's it's Death Wish with nuance. Yeah. These are the films that I think that like I wouldn't say the right. I would say the like moderates t- like leaning right would consider art. You know, like this is oh yeah, film, right? I would like, even say no. That was the public acceptance of it. Well, like everyone, exactly. this was a well received movie. Lots awards of were given, right? Eighty eight percent on the Rotten Tomatoes. So I've learned that not only do I like dad films, but apparently I I absorb them like a dad does. I yeah. I take them at face value. I You're think like, you, uh, yeah, we're all of, learning get something him. about lots of dad value. Lots of lots of deep insight was brought up today. Uh, about power structure, hierarchical categorization, uh, c- community understanding, and uh, disavowalment. Um, it's you funny knew because that I, was all coming to the table, and, and and I'm here just like, damn, that's some good acting. Exactly, <laughs> right? that's it. I think it's interesting because, like, I, in my first watching, I was appreciating the film. Because it was a good film and like I enjoyed it because there was drama and there was good acting, much like what Zach says. But now it's like we like peel back the text and read between the lines. And <laughs> yeah. I see it for I see it for what it is. It's interesting to me to now realize why I don't really gravitate at all towards organized crime films. Mm-hmm. Like well, they are they're fans. Never they're seen the Godfather. Never seen Goodfellas. Never seen The well, Departed. They're good. I think I'm, they're like I, I'm sure good. they're good with quotes, and I'm sure I would enjoy them. Again, Departed is one of those films that like is just filled with really good actors, and I like I love the like the I think I like Boston films. Is it filled with uh, like a hierarchical structure that perpetuates violence? Because it's I like, inherited a violent structure. Yeah, it's like yeah. me and Far- it's like me and Fargo. It's like I just want to hear him talk. 
Dude, you know, I don't I feel like Goodfellas. Fargo, Fargo though, is an antithesis to this film. It bada is, an, bing, it is an opposite well, to this film. And I would uh, love to talk about that sometime. Like, okay, yes, yeah. Yes, please. It doesn't uh, have to be now, though. Oh, well, yeah, like because Fargo <laughs> is its own film, but Fargo... We can talk about, like, the difference between the moral cosmology of, of conservative films and, like, the Coen brothers' very J- Judaism-informed cosmology. Both deal with chaos in different ways. One last question I had, though, first, like, is do we want to talk about the kids at all? And, like, the... What kids? The ones that fucking murdered... <laughs> oh, they're... they're silent, silent Ray. Ray. Silent Ray. <laughs> they're gawky little shit. Like, Ca- like, so causing a wreck, accidentally shooting them, and then a manhunt ensues because yeah. of an accident. Then like, the, That they then beat her with a hockey stick and shoot her in the head. Like, the escalation of this for these kids is absurd. I think the thing that really punctuated it for me was the, the hunting down of her, you know, well, so, when she I got mean, hit in the shoulder. It seems like such a, it seems like they're, they're very just, they're touched on to finish it at the end. And it's not really like mentioned, but like he, he has that little, that baby monologue of like how he hates Brendan. Um, and I don't, it makes you think like, is that hate, like, has that existed for a while? Silent Ray knows that his Great brother's name. running away. Um, he probably has repressed feelings for the, the woman that's taking him. So it, that's fair. Yep. It makes you think like, okay, uh, was the, was it even a mistake to begin with? Because like they, it was, what like two in the morning when mm-hmm. um when the the crash happens and it's just, and then it just the so accident, happened to be her car and they all just so happened to have a hockey the night stick before on them he and was everything going to run it, off yeah it's just like it makes you really think like it, i think it was premeditated and not like an accident at all but See, they definitely to me. they definitely played yeah. it off like oh it was boys being boys and they were out there playing with the gun and uh they they got scared and and they figured the only way to hide it is to to hide cover it up well underestimate like, how cruel children can be and that's like the essence of so many stephen king novels yeah right yeah like <laughs> but there potentially there's, there's, that's what happened i think there's an a line where you can consider that the movie doesn't tell you it's not important. Yeah, it, it, yeah. what's happened it's is not. what happens. Even if it is intentional, there is this discomfort with ascribing evil to... Yeah, exactly. Children. Mm-hmm. I think also in some ways the uh, the chaos of the kids perpetuating violence from, I guess, from like a screenwriting perspective, <laughs> if you tie it back to the beginning wow. when Jimmy's like, let's steal a car... Mm-hmm. And the kids are all like, yeah. what? Like, yeah. I don't want to steal. And the, but it's just this very chaotic dr- desire to like, oh, I want to do something crazy. I want to do something not allowed. And I think that, you know, if you, if you, you go from, I was being extremely ball. generous about the, about the uh, cinematography and the screenwriting, I'd be like, all right, well then you could create this parallel where it's like these two kids who are like, I want to fire a gun. I want to shoot a gun at a car. I want to like, I want to go out into the street and like do something bad and then, you know, when you imagine these three 10-year-olds, like, hijacking a car just to drive it around the block, your mind immediately is like, oh, God, the consequences are infinite. And then this same sort of chaotic criminal parallelism at the end is like, yeah, the consequences are infinite. Like, they made a mistake. Right. They were worried they were going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. 
like she, you know, ran into the woods and like tripped and fell into a concrete pit and they like beat her to death with a hockey stick. Like this sort of the slippery slope, you know, snowballing of consequences that you were led to imagine in the beginning are realized then at the end. There are two moral panics going on very briefly in this film. And the first one is definitely with the children being the new villains. The children outside, the ones on the street, they're the ones that will mug you and kill you at like a moment's reaction and notice. And like that is entirely possible and like can happen. But to get into that like reactionary mentality of that this will happen or is likely to happen is very different from this kind of moment where things escalate and you have these like crimes of passion and these these crimes of, of immaturity too. Like they don't fully understand consequences, understand and rationalize what, you know, five years in prison looks like. They can only like understand the now. The other moral panic is, and we didn't touch on this at all, is the pedophile that turns around in the car. Oh, he's got the he's got the thing. he's got the he's got the 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 bishop ring on his hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's definitely like, and this is I wouldn't say this is a moral panic per se that it doesn't happen, but like the pedophile priest scandals, they happen. They're real. And the point is that I'm trying to make is the reason they happen is they met people they trust, they gained their confidence, and they took advantage of them in secret. They didn't go around in random, on random roads looking for random kids to pick up in broad daylight. And so, like, the very premise of this film to me is just stranger danger that is, like, one in a million that doesn't fucking happen. Yeah, this is something that happens, yeah, very rarely, but... Again, dads think yes, it's it's Death Wish City in it's Chicago Death Wish City. or New York, where like you know any any jalopy could be a couple of hunters. Any car know, could have pedophiles in it. Any kid could be a murderer. And to go tie this back to Holly's point, because chaos, violence is all around you, you must mm-hmm. shore yourself up with this structure of violence and power and honor in order to protect you and your family. And you need to close that circle tight and fire uh, your, your cousins, your aunts and your uncles and your (laughs) sisters into the fucking sun. That's That's the only way to do it. Tying it all back together. I wouldn't go out and see mystic river. Um, I'm not drawn to uh, crime films. You don't Uh, like rivers. uh, And I don't know what it is that attracts me to him. I think I just like the drama aspect. Um, I like movie needs more spells. Need some um, spells? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted it to be like a... Where's the More magic? mystical, less river. Yeah, where's yeah. the magic? I needed a shaman. <laughs> you wanted yeah. more mystic, less river. Okay.